Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. Today's guest is Naveen Valrani. Naveen is Vice Chairman and Managing Director of the Al Shirawi Group, a diversified conglomerate headquartered in Dubai. Though his impressive career has spanned many of the conglomerate's 30 companies, his true passion lies in education. Like Ezra Rashid, our guest from episode two, Naveen was also a student of mine, and I can sincerely say that his love of learning is in the top 1% of the distribution. That passion has translated into becoming the CEO of Arcadia Education, the Al Shirawi Group's education initiative. He teaches in the Junior MBA program, a business curriculum for primary school students that he founded and developed at Arcadia School. However, beyond his professional accomplishments, what impresses me about Naveen is his commitment to fairness and justice and his deep compassion for others, orientations that are evident in the choices he makes and the ways he operates both personally and professionally. Thank you so much for joining me today, Naveen. It's great to see you again. You're welcome, Celia. As you know, this is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership. So the first question I ask all my guests is, what does responsible leadership mean to you? Wow, that's, that's a great question. I can spend a very long time speaking about that. But responsible leadership, if I had to sum it up, really means empathizing with those that you are leading. And when I say empathizing, I mean literally and particularly given the times we live in, putting yourself in their shoes and trying to experience what they're experiencing. And that's not easy, particularly when contexts are changing so rapidly. How do you maintain that empathy in the face of either exhaustion or increasing levels of your own responsibility? So, uh, you know, leaders do get exhausted and leaders need a break. But when you are in a position of leadership, and I'm of the opinion that almost every adult that, that I know of is in some form of a position of leadership, whether it's leadership within a family context, leadership within, within an organization, or leadership just you know, within a group of friends. You are, one is showing leadership throughout their day or has the need to show leadership skills throughout their, throughout their day. But exhaustion just does catch up. And as leaders, I believe one needs to be self-aware when that exhaustion is creeping in. And when it does, we then need to have a mechanism where you say, okay, I am unable to empathize in the manner that I wish to. And I really need to take a step back and possibly maintain some silence till I regain, regain energy. Uh, so I, I'm a big believer in the power of silence. That's a really interesting strategy. I was about to ask you, what are your strategies for restoring that energy? How do you exercise silence? You know, it comes, uh, for me at least, it's come with experience. I used to love to talk. Um, and uh, there are times even now where I have to hold myself back and say, you know what, Naveen, you, you just need to listen. And as I gained more experience in the workplace, and in particular with with leadership, I realized the power of listening. And by default, the power of listening uh, trained me in the power of, of, of silence. 
because when you're listening, you're hopefully not speaking. And uh, so by definition, you're silent uh, and, and you get this, this automatic sort of almost, almost natural wisdom that flows towards you from everyone who's in the room or on the, on the Zoom call. Uh, so really, silence is, uh, I think it comes as a byproduct of listening, but also, you know, in negotiations. And of course, there are different cultural contexts involved in negotiations as well. But leaving that aside, I do believe that when one is in some form of a negotiation, just remaining silent goes a long way in achieving a win-win situation. I think people have a really hard time understanding the importance of the absence of something. Everyone thinks that value is always an addition rather than a, a subtraction. And there can be a lot gained from subtraction. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about your career. You've said publicly that, that you had a particularly challenging time in your career when you were in your late 20s and took over the Al Sharawi group. Tell us a little bit about that time. When I was in my 20s, my late 20s, I had done reasonably well selling trucks in the, in the Dubai market. And uh, I was called in by my uh, chairman and by our senior vice chairman. And they said, look, you know, you've done really well in how you organized this trucking business. Uh, and uh, we'd like you to take over and lead our air conditioning business. That, that vertical that was reasonably sizable by, by, by standards those days. Uh, this is now we're talking late 90s. I said, sure, you know, uh, I loved new challenges. Uh, what they didn't tell me was that I would have to give up on my uh, trucking business and, and everything and the relationships that I had forged within the workplace because I was being put into a completely... A new a new setting. That was tough for me as a, as a twenty seven year old. You know, relationships mattered to me in so many different ways. You build friendships in the workplace. Uh, you you share laughs uh, and and just to, to I didn't have the maturity at that time to see to see how I could preserve those memories and those relationships. For me, it was giving those those up, and that caused a lot of personal stress. Giving up on on, on relationships, uh, and that's never easy. But but for a twenty seven year old, at least for me, it was it was tough. And uh, dealing with that mentally was was very very difficult. I was also, uh, you know, my wife and I we were pregnant, first child coming along, losing relationships in the workplace. It was just a, a lot of a lot of stress uh, for for uh, for me at that time. How did I deal with it? Well, you learn to deal with it. You know, life uh, life throws you in the deep end, and uh, you have to learn how to swim. That's what I what I learned how to do. Well, it's interesting you brought up family there because one of the things that I have always thought about you or observed about you is how important a system of support for your career your family has been. And also how hard you work at maintaining an effective dual career family. You know, your wife has a, has a major career of her own. Family is really important to you. Um, I think a lot of people are really mystified by how to make that work. What are your secrets in that domain? 
the last year has reminded us of how finite life is. And for me, you really have to decide on what memory or what legacy you want to leave behind as a human being. I can uh, spend literally 18 hours a day in, in the office, focused, working, even enjoying it to a certain degree. But then you, you ref- I, I reflect and I say, is this what I really want out of my life? For me, what matters is relationships. And I know that's already come up in an earlier question, but I don't want to be remembered as the most successful CEO that a person ever worked for. I want to be remembered as a genuinely nice guy. When you simplify life, when I was able to simplify life to to that as as being a a mission of mine, life just becomes so much easier, right? I go into, I get up in the morning and the first thing I think to myself, how can I help my family today? What do I need to do to help my family today? And, you know, take 30 minutes, 45 minutes of my morning, but I start off my day contributing to the lives of those that I, I, I care for, uh, I deeply care for. And, that, and the rest of the day just falls, hopefully most of the time falls into place. I think that's a wonderful orientation. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about your work in education, right? Because that's a, that's a real passion of yours. I, I wonder if it's among the things that gives you the biggest sense of accomplishment. How has that played into a career that has been in other very different forms of business. Like trucks and air conditioning is really different than education. So (laughs) how do you manage those multiple strains? It's interesting to answer this question when an educator is asking you the question. Uh, So what I, so firstly, I feel blessed to have entered the education space. Being in trucks, air conditioning and other industries outside of the education space I didn't realize that that many nice people exist in one single industry. The education industry is truly amazing. You know, when I speak to my teachers, I often tell them that none of you entered education or wanted to be a teacher or a professor for the money. Because if you did, you wouldn't be here. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Whoever's entered education has entered it with some sort of purpose to change the world, to make it a better place. And it might be very idealistic, but that's what it takes to move the needle. So it, it was just so refreshing to enter an industry where people genuinely wanted to make a difference every single day. You know, I feel this is my life mission, uh, the education space and what I've learned in the education space, I take back now to my other businesses and apply them there. I look at myself now today as a coach, as someone who, uh, whose job it is to impart knowledge, share knowledge, and continuously learn. And this I've picked up from the education industry. Right? I, I mean, Celia, people like you, right? Constantly learning. Right. I remember when we when you when you were my professor on that international assignment in India. 
I, I was observing you, and while I was learning a ton from you and from my colleagues and, and our team, I was watching you learn from us. And I said, wow, right? Uh, I was brought up in an era where the teachers talked and the students listened. And here was a professor that was listening and learning and sharing all at the same time. So really, you know, the education industry has just been uh, such a refreshing change. And I feel very, very fortunate, blessed that I was able to, I, I am able to participate in changing the lives of students. Well, you're absolutely right that, that I mean, hopefully t- we all can learn from each other all the time. I'm constantly inspired by my students, especially the very best ones. Uh, I'm interested in a little bit about about uh, how you were raised. So what do you consider the most important lesson from either your parents or those who were around when you were growing up? So it was my father and my mother. My early memories of childhood are deeply tied to my mother. She is, uh, till this day, one of the most loving individuals I know of when it comes to her own children. Nothing in the world matters, nothing, literally nothing, when it comes to the happiness of her children. And that unconditional love growing up was such a powerful force. To have a person like that in my life who would literally disregard almost everything for the love of her children and the, and the well-being of her children uh, was, was invaluable. She also supported our, uh, you know, our early childhood and beyond as my father was busy making, making a life, uh, making a life and for, for himself and, and, and us. My, uh, my father, on the other hand, was just such a role model, just watching him and everything about him, right? From the small little details of the way he dressed, the way he spoke, his dedication towards the workplace, and at the same time trying to be a father while building a life for, for himself was, was inspiring. And, you know, as, as I get older and older, each passing day I realize how inspirational he, he is because it's not easy to balance all these different forces that, that take place in your life. And he was really, really good at it. I mean, I still remember entering year year seven or year eight and it was our uh, you know my first exam in secondary school and I remember it was history and I was studying and my father uh, said you know I'm going to study with you I'm going to help you study and he said how do you study how do you what are your study skills and I didn't have any study skills I didn't know what study skills are I didn't know how to interpret a piece of text for, for an exam. And he sat there and he pulled out uh, his, a highlighter. I didn't know what a highlighter was. And he showed me that when you, as you read, you, you highlight the areas that you find interesting and that you feel that you can relate, relate to uh, through, through different ways, right? Text to text, text to world, text to self. And this was taught to me by my father. And it was probably, it is till this day, the best skill I've ever picked up when it comes to, to study skills. So, so these are the little things. And, you know, despite all, all the success he achieved, uh, I treasure those moments where he was being a father 
in in those little little ways, uh, and those you know that that meant the world to me, and and I, and I've learned from that, right? And to, you know you, the earlier question you you asked about family, right? I've learned from that because the special moments for me growing up was not. The, the the making of the money or even the spending of the money it was those little tiny experiences that 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 I cherish and and I want to make sure I have I have those with my my kids. What's well, interesting that thought about moments, right? Because I think that that's true when you teach and when you parent and as you are a friend or as you lead, the narrative thread that makes up our life is created by those tiny moments. One of them is being up at three in the morning with you (laughs) in India. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) I do remember that. As we tried to finish that project um, in time to present to the board. So those, those creating those moments, I think is a nice way to think about uh, effective leadership in a way. So I also wanted to ask you about an experience that you revealed to me a few years ago. I'm interested, as you know, in ethics and moral conflict. And you came to me with a dilemma that you were facing at work with a senior a senior person on your team who had been discovered to have been violating policies of your organization. And you were deeply conflicted about it one of the things that I remember so strongly about that conversation is your sense of wanting to do what was right by everyone and what a hard thing that is to do, right? I was particularly impressed that you were willing to talk to me about it because, because that reveals a vulnerability, right? That most people don't want to talk about anything like that. They just want to imagine that they know exactly what the right decision is and will go ahead and execute it quickly to make sure that they don't have to think about it. Can you tell me a little bit about what your experience of that was? So I, I want to start with addressing the issue of being vulnerable. Again, in, in today's world, in the times we're living through, I believe it is extremely important all essential for leaders to show vulnerability. If if I want to walk out there and show that I am brave and I'm facing the the COVID-19 crisis head on, who am I kidding, right? I mean, come on, give me a break, right? Uh, The fact remains that this crisis is unprecedented. It has created an unprecedented amount of sadness, at least for our lifetimes. And as leaders, we need to show that we are affected, that we are deeply affected, affected to the point where some of us, myself included, have been brought to tears with what's happening. And if we don't admit that uh, in, in this context, and for that matter, even in the context that I shared with you, Am I really being an empathetic leader if I myself cannot be vulnerable? So, so I think vulnerability is not spoken about enough when you look at successful traits or traits of successful leaders. When it came to that particular episode, I was torn. It was a specific case where a senior member of my team had used company resources for personal work. And for me, for someone who values discipline and integrity, it, it, it deeply hurt me. 
I didn't know who to turn to. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because you, you use the word ethics with moral conflict. And I think moral conflict should be used more than the word ethics. Because very often, yes, when, when situations are black and white, it's, it's easy, right? And the law many times helps us with that, right? This is right, this is wrong. Religion sometimes helps us with that. This is right, this is wrong. But it's when you are conflicted where you have a person you know that who is deeply, who you've worked with and you know is an honest, honest human being and he or she has betrayed you or you feel betrayed like, like I did. So I needed to turn to someone who I believed had, uh, had a scholarly approach to this challenge or would have a scholarly approach that had a research backing and someone who had, had potentially faced these situations in either their own life or been part of a, a situation where they were asked to resolve what was going on. And you gave me some invaluable guidance because while I was trying to say, look, I need to maintain a certain level of minimum standard that, that, that I apply to myself and to, to those around me. My conversations with you made me realize that why am I imposing these boundaries on myself, right? What, what do I gain by saying, no, this is the standard, standard set by me, ironically, that, that I expect people to, to live by. These are the values. Uh, who am I to impose this? So as you, as you advise at that time, I did speak to the man. I called him up and uh, I said, I said, you know, this has happened. You used company resources. They were cleaners to come to your home and clean your, clean your home on a regular basis. And I'm disappointed. And uh, like very often happens, I had partial information only till that point because he went on to explain me that his spouse actually had a medical problem. And he wanted to employ cleaners that he could trust to come to his home. So he chose to employ company cleaners and he had even offered to pay for them. But the business unit manager who was responsible for the cleaner said, oh, you know what, uh, you don't need to pay for this. Uh, so there was that conversation that took place. But if I hadn't spoken to you, the consequences of, of the way I was thinking at that time could have been drastic and, and wrong in so many ways because I would have taken an action that would have, uh, you know, in time to come just hurt us. So I learned a lot from that. You know, I learned from a lot from that. You know, you, you need to look at different lenses uh, when, you, when you have a moral conflict. Nothing wrong with reaching out to people whose opinion you respect and value. And nothing wrong with showing vulnerability. And I would encourage leaders to show vulnerability. I actually now make a concerted effort every day to say, what vulnerability am I going to display today to my team and to my family members? Oh, I think that's such a great piece of advice. What I remember from that conversation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to possibly oversimplify, but you said, this is happening and I think I need, I think I need to fire them. And I said, okay then why are you calling me? And you said, because I feel, I feel awful. I, I can't. And I said, well, then maybe that means 
<laughs> that's not what you really want to do. As someone who, who teaches and studies ethics, it is not a rare occurrence, right, that people will come to me to ask for those types of advice. And I never want to give any direction. And I will tell them that my only role is to ask questions, right, to to allow the person who has come to me to arrive at a conclusion that they, or an outcome or a decision that they feel more comfortable with, right? So what was so obvious to me when we had that conversation was that you were not comfortable with what you felt you ought to be doing and arriving at a, at a solution that allowed for more comfort and more empathy. And ultimately I think a better outcome for everyone involved, right? Is a, was a really lovely conclusion to that story. And also, see, see, I have to say, I learned uh, from you the power of questioning, right? The power of questions. I think leaders, again, what a great strategy to manage. Just ask great questions. And again, I think this is not spoken about enough, too, in terms of a skill set that leaders require. We need to, to learn how to ask the right questions. See, I learned that from Socrates. This is, this is why philosophy is a really good backing for all, all future endeavors. It's so true. This next uh, little section of questions is, is just designed to allow listeners to get to know you a little bit better in, in a way that can be, um, I think, interesting and, and kind of fun. So what is your favorite work of fiction? Harry Potter. <laughs> and why? <laughs> so I read Harry Potter, you know, as an adult. And I just loved how J.K. Rowling was able to take me into a world of fantasy and keep me engaged through six or seven books. I mean, that was just, I was just fascinated. But just from the very start, right? I mean, her writing, her own personal story, and it just kept me engaged. And the ability for, to, you know, it's not easy for me to remove myself from reality. I struggle with it. And J.K. Rowling was able to do that through, through Harry Potter. So I just loved, I loved reading her books. I don't read much fiction, but Harry Potter is one I stuck to. I'm actually in the third book right now. I read it to my six-year-old every night. What is your favorite secret skill? Wow, that's an interesting one. I think if I were to answer that today, it's listening. It's the ability to just be silent and listen. Do you have a personal motto? Nurture lifelong learning. What is your favorite word? So it's a word I'm trying to not use, but it's the word interesting. Because uh, when I'm unable or when I need time to think before passing an opinion on a particular issue, I say, wow, that's interesting. Giving me some time to then say, okay, look, what do I really feel about this? So, So interesting is probably my favorite word. If you had to do something entirely different with your life, what would it be? Oh, that's an easy one for me. I would be a teacher. My current role allows me to teach, and I love it. I taught uh, some five-year-olds yesterday a curriculum that I founded called the Junior MBA, and it, it is the highlight of my week, uh, just to be around children and to know that I'm contributing towards their, their development. It's such such a great satisfaction. I will never give up teaching. They're so good at it too. Kids are so good at learning. 
And I feel like a lot of our educational systems are designed to knock out people's ability to be interested in learning. True, true. I don't know how you teach the big kids. I, I like to stick to the small kids. <laughs> Obviously, I like the big kids because, because I think I, I, my approach is different than what they've experienced for a lot of their adult learning. So I try and get them back to that state of being six and asking all the questions. I had a, I had a long conversation on the way to school this morning with my six-year-old about w- the etymology of the word earwig. Why is that? Why is that insect called an earwig? Is it that they go into your ears? Is it that they look like an ear? Anyway, I'll have the answer to that question for him when he gets off the bus at the end of the day. So, looking to the to the future, what are the opportunities or worries do you have about the extent to which our future will be so driven by technology? So let me talk about the the opportunities first. Technology is clearly here to stay. Uh, It was here to stay prior to the pandemic. Many of the trends we were observing prior to the pandemic have been accelerated during the pandemic when it comes to technology. I do believe there are certain industries that are ripe for change. One of them is payments. Everyone seems to be talking about cryptocurrencies, but regardless of what's happening to the price of Bitcoin, I do feel that the payments industry is ripe for change. The fact that even till this day, when we use a credit card, it needs to be rooted through the banking system is absurd. I think blockchain and the technologies that are associated with it will will change the payments industry. The education industry has already changed how we deliver lessons. What are the lessons we've taken out of the pandemic as teachers? So, for instance, parent-teacher meetings, right? Why don't we think of having parent-teacher meetings virtually prior to the pandemic? I mean, it seems so obvious right now, like, you know, with all the traffic, and particularly in major cities, we have to make our way to school, uh, sit with different teachers. You can do it all, all virtually. So I think that's here to stay. I do think some of the tools that we've picked up during the pandemic, we use a a platform called Nearpod, which has been amazing from a teaching perspective. And during the pandemic, it allows a teacher to do like create, take their their presentation and add collaborative boards and different other types of challenges. It's it's the best thing I've ever experienced uh, from a teaching standpoint. So I do think that those are the tools that we are here to stay. I do think ed tech, will more and more play a major role in how we deliver knowledge. I do also believe physical schools are here to stay, and the pandemic has proven that too. But I think there will be a really nice marriage between the world of ed tech and the world of physical schools and physical universities. Uh, And I think the the dating phase has, has definitely started. Until this point, every time we build a building, for education, we'd be like, will this be around in 10, 15 years, 20 years? And the, and the pandemic has answered that, that question. Uh, so I, I do see a lot of opportunities coming up in payments, coming up in education. And I do believe that no matter which business you're in, if you do not have a digitization strategy, then there's something wrong. You're destined to, to failure. So I believe every single business in the world today must have a digitization strategy. Now, when it comes to the, the negatives of technology, and these are really, really concerning. And being an educator now, I, I'm deeply concerned 
with where this is all heading to. Social media, of course, is a major concern. And my biggest concern is while we are all acknowledging the, the threat of social media, the threat when it comes to the mental health of our children, but even adults, we seem to be so far behind the curve when it comes to regulation. The government seem to be constantly playing catch up, but the gap is getting exponentially wider because technology is moving so far ahead and so quickly. If we had this conversation two years ago, we wouldn't be, there would be no TikTok. Right? Well, at least we wouldn't be talking about it. And now we have this whole video culture that started thanks to TikTok. Uh, there's, there's a platform that's gaining popularity where now it's about audio and listening into conversations. And I don't know how that's going to play out as, as that gets more and more popular. So I'm really, really concerned about the ill effects of social media and how governments are potentially going to catch up and regulate uh, in order to ensure the well-being of, it, of their respective populations. But also, you know, life for me is about relationships. Uh, if, if I was not your student in India in that international assignment, I would not be sitting here today having this conversation with you. The fundamental basis was that we were in the same space physically, teacher to students, professor to students. And I, don't, I would not give that up for any digital experience. You know, we, we took a flight there. We enjoyed experimenting with the food. We went to meetings. Uh, we, we worked till three in the morning. You kept rejecting our presentations. We kept redoing them, redoing them, redoing them. <laughs> That would not happen in a virtual environment, right? That would not happen in a virtual environment. The other big challenge with virtual environments is this whole multitasking culture. I could be speaking with you right now and doing three different other things on my computer. That doesn't work. When I talk to you or you talk to me and we're in the same physical space, what we appreciate, at least what I appreciate, is focus and concentration and that you are genuinely interested in me and I'm genuinely interested in you. In the virtual space, I just don't know who's interested anymore, right? Even when you're teaching, you have all these, uh, these lovely squares or rectangles in front of you. And who is really listening as a teacher? One doesn't know. I mean, you're picking up on little cues now. We've become experienced to, to know who's, who, who, who might be listening and who might not be. But still, it's just not the same. So I'm really, really concerned in terms of technology taking over, right? I, I think it's important we get back together. I think as leaders, I was, I was uh, speaking with my executive principal uh, yesterday, and I said, in my role, I have a responsibility to return to normalcy. I need to know when we're going back to in-person meetings. Well, I, I, I do think that the, the, the next decade, there will be a shift the other way to recognizing the effects that an all virtual or overly virtual environment have had on our attention and focus we're not wired for it. That's not how we're wired. And so there's something about this life that is not feeding an important part of our soul that needs to be fed. And I don't think that 
that we recognize that thoroughly enough yet. This is, this is why I go and meet my students in the park sometimes just to see each other in three dimensions. I, I know we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to uh, end on, a, on an optimistic note by asking what gives you hope for the future? What gives me hope for the future are the children of the world. You know, I teach five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and wow, they want to change the world. And I don't think, you know, you have to look too far. You pick up any newspaper today and you are seeing people, probably for the first time as long as I remember, who are now saying, this is right and this is wrong, right? And, and I have great hope with our youth. Uh, when we were growing up, there were certain things you couldn't speak about. You wouldn't think of speaking about it, right? You'd upset so-and-so, you'd upset this, you'd upset this. But no, now, when you look at things happening, for instance, in the United States, you look at, you look at the streets of London, people are coming out in masses when they believe something is wrong and they want to change things. Investors, who would have ever expected financial investors to say ESG, uh, you know, environmental, social, and corporate governance? Let, give me a list of companies that follow ESG because investors are being pushed by the youth of the world. They're saying enough is enough. You need to put your dollars to, towards companies that are genuinely concerned and want to make the world a better place. So I, I see tremendous power coming from the youth, and we as leaders uh, will be forced to change. Uh, change to make the world a better place. I'm extremely optimistic. Well, I do think that you are absolutely making the world a better place. Thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to me, Naveen, and I hope that this is an opportunity for us to continue more conversations more regularly. I would love that. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.